How many of you have a nativity scene somewhere within your house? Yeah, we probably have like 25 nativity scenes in our house. Uh, and these could be like on Christmas ornaments or, or little objects set up maybe on your mantle or on a shelf somewhere. They could be three-dimensional, they could be two-dimensional. The nativity scene uh, is a great reminder of what this holiday is really about. But for a lot of people, it's just another thing that they take out of a box come Christmas time. It's just another uh, trinket, it's just another ornament that they take out of a box. It's just another thing to decorate around this time. But what this scene represents is the fact that there is a child lying within a manger and that God in that child has come near us, that God is among us, that God is the Emmanuel. Now there are four primary accounts of Jesus' life in Scripture, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Matthew's Gospel, he is telling us about the birth of Jesus, as we read earlier this morning already. He said this, they will call him Emmanuel, that God is with us. God is among his people. Now, here's the thing. You have to understand how crazy, crazy, crazy of an idea this is. That God, or a God, or any God, would come among the people. In the Roman world in which the Jewish people lived in the first century, the gods never would have humiliated themselves to this extent. To become human, the gods never would have done that. To lay in a filthy feeding trough, the gods never would have done that. To lie in a peasant little village, the gods never would have done this. They never would have taken up residency with humanity. And not only this, there was never an instance in all of the history of the gods where they came and pursued humanity in love. There was never an instance in all of the history of the gods, Roman gods, Greek gods, whatever god there may be, there was never an instance where the gods pursued humanity in love. See, for the most part, humanity was really just an annoyance to the gods. <laughs> we were an annoyance. We were so loud that the gods actually wanted to annihilate us. We were so annoying that the gods actually wanted to do away with us, but they resisted doing that because we provided them food in our sacrifices, and we provided them honor and worship in our temples. And so the gods refused to do that. The gods didn't chase down humanity. That's not what the gods did. The gods didn't pursue humanity in love. That's just not what the gods did. And yet here we find God coming amidst humanity. God is with us. Here we find God residing amidst humanity and throwing aside all dignity and in complete humility coming to live within a feeding trough to be dependent upon a woman for nine months to care for him and raise him as he grows within her belly. God crossed an infinite yet intimately close divide to be with his people. And he set up camp in the midst of people. And here's the thing, guys. The people were not pious. The people were not righteous. The people were not holy and just. The people that God sets up camp with are everyday human beings, sinners, unholy, imperfect, you and me. This is who God sets up camp with. This is the God we serve, the God who pursues his enemies in love. And the reason it seems so radically beautiful, I can't be the only one who thinks this is radically beautiful. The reason I think this seems so radically beautiful is because loving those who have offended you is a radical, otherworldly idea that is so foreign to us. And it's conflicting with the very nature of how we typically act. The reason it seems so wonderful and beautiful that God would come to live amidst his enemies is because we just are not accustomed to this type of behavior. All throughout the world, hot springs that formed a combination spa and worship centers, that's kind of what worship centers oftentimes were uh, thousands of years ago. They were also spas, right? That would be nice if we had a little, uh, little spa for you guys right here, free, free manicures after the service. Spa and worship centers, they have excavated thousands and thousands of prayers that had been 
um, paid for that had been, they, they'd pay the priest and the priest would write down these prayers. And all of these prayers are called curse tablets. They found thousands of these curse tablets. These are known as curse tablets because the majority of them, the vast majority of them, are curses against people's enemies. And so they would pay the priest to offer a, a curse up to the gods because something had happened to them. And so they'd write specifically, um, this is what had happened to me, this is what I want done to my enemy, and this is the timeline I want it done in. And so one example, for instance, uh, reads this, Dosimedes has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes, in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. And so this guy thinks that his really fancy, nice gloves have been stolen. He's like, hey, that thief that has taken my gloves, I want him to lose his eyes and his mind. Okay, I'm going to pay this amount of money. The, God is gonna offer, the priest is going to offer this up to the god on my behalf. It's a curse tablet. Another uh, example that was discovered in Rome says, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names. Tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucurios, the charioteer, and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind and pass, but instead let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up. Let him drag behind, both in the early races and the later ones. Now, now, quickly, quickly. Wow. Now, what's interesting about all this is that they have yet to discover a blessing tablet. And all of the thousands of prayers that they've excavated, they've never found one that blesses somebody. Why? Why haven't they found a blessing tablet? Well, it's because people did not pray blessings upon people to Zeus and to Bacchus. Fierce loyalty to your friends and fierce opposition to your enemies were considered noble. That is just the way you behave. That is just the way that you live. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, well, he is just quoting conventional wisdom. Right? This is how people naturally act. Hating your enemy, loving those who are close to you, that's just the way of the world. That's just how we do things. He is quoting conventional wisdom. Of course, they had heard this. The Greek writer Xenophon said, a man should give help to his friends and trouble to his enemies. Of course, they had heard this. That's what all the prophets, uh, that's what all of the, uh, the, um, the, the philosophers, thank you, thank you somebody out there who, who helped me with that. Thank you, all the philosophers were teaching them, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. On his deathbed, Cyrus of Persia gave this as his final advice. If you do good to your friends, you will also be able to punish your enemies. Genghis Khan, several hundred years later, said that what is best in life is to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of their women. Taylor Swift, even several hundred years later than that, said, Soon she's going to find that stealing other people's toys on the playground won't make you many friends. She should keep in mind, there is nothing I do better than revenge. Of course! This is how the world acts. It's just as natural. Someone has hurt you, then you hurt them back. Someone has harmed you, you harm them back. They've taken your eye, you take both of theirs. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is how we act. This is the natural way of the world. If somebody harms you, you have every right to harm them back. And so if you have an enemy, it is actually your responsibility then to make sure that your enemy's life is cursed and your enemy's life is as horrible as it possibly can be. That is actually your responsibility. This is the general way of life taught in the vast majority of households and schools throughout the ancient world. If you've been harmed, harm back. Revenge. That is the way of the world. Historian and literature professor David Constance said, Forgiveness 
as we know it, did not exist in ancient Greece and Rome. People had various means to appease anger and reestablish relationship, but those means were dictated more by standards of honor, status, and shame than by sin, atonement, and grace. So in other words, if you have um, a str- strain in your relationship, if, you, if somebody has harmed you in a relationship, then do whatever it takes to man up, to reclaim your status. If you need to shame that person, then shame that person. If you need to hurt that person, then hurt that person. If you have been harmed in a relationship, then do whatever it takes to stand back on your feet and put that other person down so that you can be a man again. That was conventional wisdom. And as much as we like to think that, hey, you know, that's just an outdated way of thought. People don't really think that way. People don't really uh, behave that way anymore. That 2,000 years ago, that's how people interacted. But we don't interact that way. We're civilized. We've changed. We've progressed. Well, why is it that 60% of the songs on the Billboard Top 40 since 1986, 30 years in other words, have a significant theme, getting even, getting revenge, or hurting someone? That half of the movies now playing in our movie theaters have a significant theme of revenge, of getting even, or hurting someone who has hurt you. We are inundated with this. Everywhere we turn, everything we turn our eyes to and our ears to are telling us, if you have been hurt, it is in your right to hurt them back to get revenge. That is only natural. But Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies, in other words, because that's how God acts. That's what God does. He loves his enemies. He loves those who rejected him and rebelled against him. God doesn't draw near only to the righteous. He doesn't draw near only to the just. He doesn't draw near only to the good people. He draws near to those who have offended him. He draws near to those who have rejected and rebelled against him. He draws near to those who slander his name and curse his name. He draws near to everybody because in his drawing near, he is seeking out their good. But Jesus continues, If you love only those who love you, then what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? If you love only your neighbor, in other words, then you're doing nothing more than all of the evil, wicked people in the world. So how is that better? Jesus mentions greeting somebody. You know, we greet people, we say, hey, welcome, or hey, you know, and we we welcome them into our context. That's what greeting does. It invites people into our experience and into our influence and into our relationship. It's the homiest yet the smallest of behaviors. And in Jesus' day, the greeting was shalom alaka. It was an Aramaic phrase that meant peace be with you. Peace be with you. It is not enough just to simply avoid killing someone or avoid harming somebody. Jesus is actually saying that in all of your interactions, that every person you come across, that everybody you greet, that you would actually wish for and hope for and pray for their peace, whether they be your neighbor, whether they be your mother, whether they be your enemy that your disposition would be that of hoping for their peace. Now this may be shocking, but this thought and this practice, that forgiveness and the love of enemies, caring for those who have harmed you and reaching out and embracing those who have rejected you, this is solely associated with Jesus. Yes, compassion existed before Jesus. But nobody, no philosopher, no sage, no religious leader in the history of humanity had ever said, love your enemies. Extend compassion to those who have hurt you. This is solely associated with Jesus. It's a brand new thought in human human thinking. Jesus alone offers the world freedom through forgiveness. 
If you were with us last week, you may remember that every single person, I argued, every person has this dire understanding that they are broken individuals, that we are not right, and that's what the conscience is, and we have this understanding that we have harmed and that we are guilty, and so we need fixing, and so what do we do? We turn to religion. We try to work it out. We try to fix our problem. That's exactly what religion is. Now, religion for a lot of people isn't necessarily trying to appease a god or or performing rituals within a temple or a church context somewhere. Religion is anything that you do that is trying to fix your problem. You understand you're guilty, you understand that, that uh, you are flawed and that you are broken, and so it is anything that you are trying to do to fix your problem. So what do you do? You turn to money. You try to achieve money. That's going to fix your problem. You try to uh, go to science, you go to sex, you go to uh, popularity, you go to any number of these sensual pleasures or anything that the world offers you trying to fix your problem. That is religion. And a lot of people turn to the gods to appease the gods. They come to church, they go to, they go to mass, and they burn their candles, and they say their prayers, and they do everything else. That is religion. I'm trying to fix my problem by what I do, the response always work. And the gods promote that. The gods promote work. Hey, try really hard. Try to appease me. Do your very best, and maybe at the end it's going to work out for you. It is our effort to fix ourselves, and nobody before Jesus simply offered forgiveness. Nobody. Nobody before Jesus simply offered forgiveness because no one had ever crossed over into enemy, enemy territory to pursue us in love. Nobody had ever done that before. And so it only makes sense that Jesus' life was marked by the same behavior. And so we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. Starting at uh, verse 35. Jesus has spent a whole day uh, discussing with his disciples, talking with them, teaching them. And then he says this really fascinating thing. And and for a lot of readers, they're just going to breeze right over this because it doesn't seem all that fascinating, but it really is. He says this. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. Let's cross our boat over to the other side of the lake. Now, he's not merely talking about the geographical location that is on the other side of the lake. He's saying, let's go over to the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake was the region of the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. This was enemy territory, by and large. This was where the pagans were. This is where the evil people lived. This is where the horrible pagan idolaters resided. Nobody goes over to the other side. Jesus, really? You want to go to the other side of the lake? Nobody goes to that side of the lake. That is the other side of the lake. That is where the enemies are. That is actually where the seven tribes of Canaan settled after being expelled from the promised land. We're back in the book of Joshua. This region was filled with pagan temples featuring exaltations of violence or sexual expressions of greed It was everything that Israel was not. Jesus, we can't go to that side of the lake. That's where the enemies are. That's where the pagans are. That's where the horrible people are. That's where the people who are not like us are. We are not going to go over to the other side of the lake. And beside Jesus, do you know that they worship the pig over there? Pig is the most unclean of all the animals, Jesus. We can't go over there. They're going to worship the pig over there. See, the Jews believed that the other side was where Satan lived. This is where Satan originated. This is where Satan has his home. That is where Satan is. It was dark, and it was evil, and it was oppressive, and it was demonic. And this was where Rome had their regional outposts. So there was a legion of 6,000 Roman soldiers, and each Roman soldier had on their chest a pig, a boar's head. And so the Jews were like, we can't go over there. That's where the, the oppressive Romans are, the hated Romans are. That's where they eat pigs and worship pigs. That's where they uh, are, are that's, uh, oppressive and, and uh, pagan idolatry. We can't go over there, Jesus. That's where the enemies are. Nobody went over to the other side, and yet one, one day Jesus comes along and he said, let's go over to the 
other side of the lake. You know, it's almost as if Jesus didn't know that this was the other side. It's almost as if Jesus thought that that side of the lake was actually his side of the lake, and and that the people who lived over on that side of the lake were also his people, and that they belonged to him as well. It's almost as if Jesus, Jesus didn't know that this was the other side. Even though these were the seven nations of Canaan, the pagan idolaters where, 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 where Satan resides, Jesus did not know that this was the other side of the lake. And so when they landed there, there was only one person to greet them. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So he was a deranged, tormented, self-mutilating, tomb-dwelling demoniac, so disrupted that not even his community liked him anymore, so he, they shipped him off to live among the tombs and, and uh, probably, hopefully, die uh, a cozy little death all by himself. Nobody wanted to be around this guy, and so they excommunicated him from community. But this guy, he falls on his knees before Jesus, and he asks... What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, and who's in God's name? Please don't torture me. Well, what is your name, Jesus asks. And then out of this mouth in unison comes legion, for we are many. So there's this demon speaking through this man. Now, legion is a loaded term in this story. Remember that the legion of the 6,000 Roman soldiers who lived there occupied this area. It's a word for the Jews that speaks of foreign enemies, the horrible oppressive powers the legion speaks of foreign enemies. And beyond this, the spirits within the crazed demoniac, they beg Jesus, send us among the pigs. You're going to cast us out. You're going to excommunicate us. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And then, if you know the story, all the pigs are uh, filled with these demons now, and they run off the cliff, and they drown in the sea. Now, any Israelite would have quickly remembered a story that had happened 200 years prior to this. The Roman soldiers had gathered around a group of Jewish people, and they had forced them to eat pig's flesh. And of course, the pig, again, is the most hated, feared, unclean animal in all of Jewish culture. And so uh, the Jewish people said, no, no way will we defile our God by eating pigs. And so what do the Romans do? They slaughter them. They slaughter these Jewish people. Any Israelite would have remembered this. And to the Jews, the pig was a symbol of Roman power. And the pigs, along with the legion, these were just destroyed. And so as these people looked at this Jesus coming upon their shore... And he destroys the legion through the pigs. They would have immediately feared this guy. This guy is on, uh, from the other side of the lake, coming into our side of the lake, and he is bringing this fear and this destruction along with him. They immediately would have been very, very scared that he was coming to wage war. And so the people's response is fascinating. We're told that those tending the pigs, that they saw this, they ran off and they were told all their community what had happened. And when they came to see Jesus, when the community from this village came to see Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They saw Jesus and what he had done, and they were afraid. They didn't respond like the people on the other side of the lake, the Israelite side of the lake. They didn't gather up their, uh, their sick and their crippled and those who were, who were in need of healing, and they didn't rush them to Jesus hoping that he would heal them. That's not how they behaved. That's not what they did. They were afraid of what Jesus could do. And in response to this, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why? Why did they plead him to leave? Because Jesus came with power. 
He came healing. He came with this, this otherworldly power that was foreign to them. And so when they see this power from the other side of the lake landing on their side of the lake, they are immediately scared that he is going to hurt them, that he is out to get them, that he is going to hurt them. And so Jesus leaves. The once demon-possessed man wants to come, but Jesus says, no, stay back, tell your story. Tell the people of your town exactly what has happened. And so he probably felt very disheartened when he saw Jesus and his disciples row away, but he does what Jesus asks him to do, and he begins to share his story. And all of the people were amazed. Now they are amazed as they hear this story. Now a short time later, Jesus returns to this region of the Decapolis, but instead of just one crazed and demonic man greeting him and meeting him, he was met with an enormous crowd. An enormous crowd now has gathered. They ran throughout the whole region. They carried their sick on mats to wherever that they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages and towns and countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. The seven nations of Canaan are praising the God of Israel. How does this happen? How did the seven nations of Canaan praise the God of Israel? They had heard that this Jesus cared about somebody on their side. That someone from the other side came in love, not in fear, not against war, but had come in love, and they were amazed. Now there's another theme that is buried within all of this uh, same um, storytelling in Mark. When Jesus was on the other side of the lake in Mark 6, he miraculously fed 5,000 people. And then he gathered up, after this meal was taken, he gathered up 12 baskets of bread. And then when Jesus goes to the other side of the lake in Mark 8, he miraculously feeds 4,000 people. And he gathers up seven baskets of bread. On the Israelite side, where there are 12 tribes of Israel, he gathers 12 baskets of bread. On the Canaan side, where there are seven nations for Canaan, he gathers up seven baskets of bread. It's almost as Jesus is saying, I don't really care who you are. I am for you. I'm going to bless the Israelites. I'm going to bless the Canaanites. It really doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what you have done before. I am for you. It's almost as Jesus says, it doesn't really matter to me. I love you all. I love you all. It doesn't matter what you have done. I love you all. It doesn't matter what your life has been like. I love you all. But here's the thing, we're not very much like that, are we? You know, I think every day in our nation that we are reminded that we are side-takers. The sports industry thrives on this fact. I, uh, I am generally a Minnesota Twins uh, sports fan, just in general, Twins, flyer, uh, Flyers, ugh, to, uh, <laughs> Wild, <laughs> Vikings, Timberwolves. Generically, I'm a Minnesota sports fan. And uh, so I had an opportunity to go to the, uh, the Minnesota Vikings and Philadelphia Eagles game several weeks ago. You can all rub that in my face later. That's fine. Yeah, the, 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 the Eagles got that one. Um, but I, I, it was such a funny experience, you know? I'd never been to an Eagles game before, but it was so funny. So we're going on the, we're going on the train ride after the game is over back up to our car. And, uh, and everybody in the train starts singing in unison the, the Eagles fight song. You guys probably know it, right? I'm not going to ask that you sing it, but you could probably do it for me. But then at the end of the fight song, they did something a little unique. And you probably know what they did. They chant, Cowboys suck. I'm like, Cowboy, you didn't even play the Cowboys today. What's going on here? Why is there this hatred, this, this, like, this rivalry between the Eagles and the Cowboys? Go Eagles, fly, fly. Cowboys suck, by the way. I'm like, you didn't even play. Come on. 
man, it is an us versus them mentality, isn't it? Us versus them. Oh, you're a Cowboys fan? I can't treat you. That's, you're going you're to be treated how I think Cowboy fans should be treated. Even more so, I think we see this in presidential elections. Yeah, don't get me started on that, right? Oh, but here's the thing. You're a Hillary supporter? Oh, you're a Trump supporter? Oh, okay, well, I'm going to treat you how I think those supporters should be treated. Man, the dividing lines, the boxes, the categories that we see all over the place. We are side takers. And of course, the examples can go on and on and on, and we could spend hours talking about how the various sides are real, but we have very much an us versus them mentality. That we are the us, and they are the them, and we don't associate with them because they are who they are, and they do what they do. We are side takers. We are categorizers. And I do think that it makes sense because the nature of sin is judgment. Judgment is deeply embedded within every human heart. Everyone is born with this tendency that states, I will categorize you and I'll put you in a box because if I can put you in a box and confine you to a particular category, then I am justified in treating you how I believe that category deserves to be treated. And if I can categorize you, then I can treat you however I think that category deserves to be treated. And we look upon people of other religions and other ethnicities and other skin tones and other cultures and genders and sexual behaviors and political ideologies and voting choices, and we see the boxes and we see the dividing lines. But Jesus comes and he sees the universal human experience. Jesus treats people on the other side as if they were on our side. He tears down the boxes and he, and he tears apart the dividing walls and he says, hey, there aren't any sides anymore. If there are sides, you know, if there are categories, then let me define them for you. It's not us versus them. It is perfect and imperfect. It's holy and sinful. And you know what, my friends? If that is true, if it's perfect and imperfect and holy and sinful, then I am on the imperfect side. I am on the unholy side. I am on the sinful side. I am on the wrong side, just as we all are. If Jesus sees that these are the appropriate categories, then we're all in the same camp. We're all in the same camp. And yet Jesus was determined to make this his camp. See how beautiful that is? Jesus was determined to make this his camp. And so with Christmas, God crosses this infinite yet intimately close divide, and he sets up camp on our side, and he claims our side as his own. And again and again and again in the life of Jesus, he does the exact same. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus agrees with everyone. It doesn't mean that he's tolerant of every single behavior. It doesn't mean that he's relativistic. It doesn't mean that he fears conflict. It simply means that Jesus was intent on loving those that everybody else saw as a them. He healed anybody who was willing to be healed. He taught anybody who was willing to listen. He touched the lepers and he dined with the prostitutes. He poured out his kindness freely. Because Jesus knew, as did Paul, that it was this kindness given first, this kindness that was poured out and this love that was offered first that was going to lead a broken, sinful people to repentance. It's not that we need to be repentant in order to receive God's kindness. It's not that we need to do things in order to receive God's love and his forgiveness. He offers them first in order that we might become like him. Kindness is first. Kindness is always first. And this is unconditional love. And it's easy to see others and categorize them unfairly and thereby treat them how we believe their category is worthy of treating. That's easy. That's how the Roman gods promoted behavior in in their cultures. And that's how the Greek gods told the people how to live. That's how the cowards react. But there was a boy born in a stable. 
born of a virgin, laid in a feeding trough, and embodied the living God who stepped over dividing lines and made his home among his enemies. And this boy would grow to be a man who would teach us what it meant to live in a countercultural, love your enemy type existence. It wasn't just something he taught about, it was something that he embodied and something that he did over and over and over again. Loving one's enemies, forgiving those who had wronged you, was never seriously taught or displayed before Jesus. In all the history of the philosophers and the sages, loving your enemies, embracing those who have wronged you, has never been taught before Jesus. But the simple yet profound truth has begun to change our world. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this for just a few more minutes as we sing one final song together. So Jesus didn't just speak this, right? He didn't have these, these verbal commands to love your enemy. He embodied it. He, he lived it. He displayed it. And so as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he, he looks down upon his mockers, and he looks down upon his abusers, and he says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. He didn't call curses down from heaven. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And, and then there was this guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus. And he sees this incredible, beautiful display of compassion. And he says, that is what I want to commit the remainder of my life to. He sees the compassion and the love of Jesus, and it changed him. And for the few hours that he had left of his life, he committed them to Jesus. Stephen, one of the very earliest followers of Jesus, was surrounded by enemies and stoned to death. And he didn't call down curses from heaven upon his enemies. He didn't try to seek revenge in the little time he had. While he was falling to the ground as stones were hitting him and making him bleed out, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Do not hold the sin that they're committing against them, Father. And this act began to spread throughout the entire Mediterranean world as the gospel of Jesus Christ, this love your enemy gospel of Jesus Christ, transformed the world. About 100 years later, Maurice, a commander in the Roman army, was so impressed by the followers of Jesus being willing to die that he actually refused to carry out any more executions. He saw the compassion and the love that these people had as they were going to their death, and he said, I want to commit my life to that too. And in fact, he then was executed. Leo Tolstoy, several hundred years later, wrote a book titled Resurrection. It inspired a British lawyer to start a Tolstoyan community in South Africa. The last full letter that Tolstoy ever wrote to a non-family member was to this lawyer. And it praised his self-sacrificial Jesus, enemy-loving Jesus embodiment and example. That lawyer's name was Mahatma Gandhi. And though when Mahatma Gandhi eventually went back to India to begin movements of the same enemy-loving, uh, self-sacrificial, Jesus-like communities, he didn't name them after Christ because he thought that Christianity was such a hypocritical religion. But he loved Jesus, and he was inspired to do what he did because the Sermon on the Mount and the example of Jesus lived out from day to day. And Jesus' teachings and Gandhi's strategies inspired Martin Luther King Jr. to lead an oppressed people through enemy lines in loving, nonviolent ways and to stand in front of millions of people and confess that I have a dream. I have a dream where one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought low, that the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream. And the conscience of a nation was stirred by a man who was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Rwanda of 1994, Hutus slaughtered tens of thousands of their Tutsi brothers and sisters. 
John Rukiana, one who witnessed his niece be raped and killed, found forgiveness of his own crimes through Jesus Christ. And he began this Umuvumu tree project, which brings perpetrators and victims of the genocide together, offering offenders the opportunity to confess and offering the victims an opportunity to forgive. And tens of thousands of these people have come together and found reconciliation through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, this guy who promoted this idea to love your enemies. In 2006, the world was moved when five school children were shot to death by a gunman in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. The Amish community forgave the gunman and they donated all the money that came in to the gunman's family. Why? Why didn't they call down curses on that family? Why didn't they seek revenge against the person who had killed their children? Why? Because the love of God compelled them to love their enemies. In 2009, a man named O'Shea moved next door to a woman named Mary. Sixteen years prior to this, O'Shea murdered Mary's son. Mary had experienced such grace through Jesus that she was compelled to meet O'Shea as a young man in prison, extend forgiveness and extend hope for his best, to long and desire that he would be restored. They began meeting regularly and he loved. And the love of God compelled her to treat this man as her son. And, and when the opportunity arose, O'Shea eventually got out of prison and, and he needed a place to live. And, and it just so happened that Mary lived in a duplex and the other side of the duplex was absent and vacant. And so O'Shea moved in next door to the mother of the boy that he had killed 16 years prior. Why? Why, why didn't she try to murder this guy in return for murdering her son? Why didn't she call down curses? Why didn't she seek revenge? It's because this guy named Jesus said that we ought to love our neighbor and love our enemy. And in this case, an enemy became a neighbor. Now imagine what our community would look like if we sought to love our enemies and those who had wronged us. How would Levittown and this region in Bucks County be different if we started a movement of loving those who had wronged us instead of seeking revenge or praying curses down upon them? How would our households look different if reconciliation and humility were the desires of our hearts instead of poking back? What if we sought reconciliation? What if we sought humility? What would change within our households? What if within our individual hearts we, we long to be restored and to find peace instead of the anger that is so burrowed there and, and, and the hatred or, or the anxiety or the fear that we feel every single day? What would happen what would happen if the peace that Christ offers us found a home within our hearts and within our households and within our community? What would change? See, why did all of these and countless other stories that I could have shared happen? Why did any of this happen? Because with Christmas, God crossed over enemy into enemy territory and through his kindness and through his love, he made friends out of enemies. And so this is one of the ways that this boy changed the world. If you'd like to further this discussion, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, we, have, we have review questions in the back, and you can take those with you and discuss it on your car ride home or discuss it over lunch or discuss this over dinner further. Continue the conversation about how we are called to love our enemies and those who have wronged us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, for all that you have done on our behalf, you crossed over, Father, to love us. You didn't just talk about it, Father. You actually did something about it. You came into our territory and you set up camp so that you would love your enemies, Father, to, re to restoration. 
that the love that you poured out and the kindness that you poured out first would bring us to repentance, would make us to become like you, Father. Now, as we are like you, Father, I pray that then we would have the boldness and the tenacity and the courage to cross over into enemy territory and say, I love you too. I love you too. I'm not going to have this us versus them, these dividing walls mentality. We're going to tear these down. It is us, and we're in this together, and I'm going to love you to Jesus Christ. Even if you have harmed me, Father, I'm going to cross over and I'm going to love you to Jesus Christ so that you too might experience the great transformation and the restoration that Christ offers. Let us do this, Father. Let us do it in your name, Father. In this Christmas season, we are reminded that in your love, you came near to enemies and you loved us back to yourself. Thank you for doing such a great and incredible act. We pray these things in your name. Amen.